Morning. It's glad to see that you're all feeling lively today. <laughs> I can only imagine the comments and the heckling that I'll receive. Um, I'm Chris. I'm on staff here at Riverstone. Glad you're with us online or in person. I'm super thankful that you're engaging with us, and I hope you find your time well spent. Um, let's pray together, and then uh, we'll get into the word. Uh, Jesus, we ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would speak peace to our hearts in a way that only you can. God, we acknowledge um, the multiple and overwhelming amount of things that tempt to rush into our thinking right now, to-do lists, friends to talk to, things to get to, and uh, rob us of the ability to sit with your word, to contemplate, to reflect. So Father, I I pray that um, through the peace of the Holy Spirit, you would remove blinders um, from our eyes, uh, that we have been missing out maybe on what it means to be a Christian, to call ourselves the people of God. God, give us a vision today of what that looks like for us. We love you, Lord. You let me pray these things. Amen. I want to talk to you today about a very challenging idea that we find in Scripture. Uh, Perhaps you won't be challenged by it, but I certainly am. And despite its undeniable presence in Scripture, this idea seems to be conveniently for us uh, sidestepped and underemphasized. And I think you'll see why. It's just what I'm drawn to. I'm sorry you go to a church where the pastor is just drawn to the stuff that everyone else likes to ignore. Um, But before I let the cat out of the bag, um, I want to give you a picture uh, in your mind. And the picture is one that I've long thought, perhaps kind of unconsciously, this is what Christian community looks like. This is what Christian relationships look like, must look like. And often, I've thought of myself as experiencing in fullness what the New Testament must have meant when it talks about community, because at various times, sometimes unexpected times throughout my life, I've found myself amongst people that I deeply love, old friends and new, good food, good drink, open, deep convo where vulnerability and trust is had amongst us all. Maybe a guitar or two is being passed around, right? And I look around a room and I feel connected and apart. And there's a corporate sense of we're all together, you know, and there's joy and there's thankfulness. And I love those nights. I'm not knocking them. I long for them. I haven't had those. I had kids. I haven't had those nights in a long time, right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this. Um, It's wonderful. I mean, it's deeply encouraging, right? Everyone brings food and drink together and maybe a new friend, you pick one up and you start talking and you immediately find out, oh man, we think alike. We're just like, and there's a sense of this kind of what we call kindred spirit. Do you guys know that one? Kin, it's like your kin. That's what it means. Like your family, immediately, your family. I don't even know you. We're kin, right? Maybe some hobby or some belief or some ideal. For me, like the common thing and oftentimes in these atmospheres has been we all follow Jesus. We're all Christians, you know? And that kind of affirms this idea. This must be what it looks like. 
This must be what the New Testament was getting at when it talks about community and having all things in common, right? And it's lovely. I, I love it. We're in this, right? A lot of times it's ministry, and so we're talking about that, and it's beautiful. There's camaraderie. It's the best. I, if you've not had this, I'm, I, I want you to have this. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, and I think, at least in part, that's what the New Testament is getting after in some way, feasting, right? Together, gratitude, where you look around a room, and overflowing from your heart is just affection and gratitude for this, these people in this moment in time, right? Have you experienced that, right? And you're like, I think you're describing being tipsy. No, it's not, it's not what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about a unique unity and togetherness that I've experienced and I've thought, this is what it means. This has to be it. I feel loved, I feel known. And people are all together. This I love these people. They love me. We're full of gratitude, right? We're happy. There's good food. There's good drink, good convo. Bill's a bit tipsy, but that's Bill. He always, you know, whatever. But, but I'm deeply encouraged right now, right? And it's really wonderful and I, I long for you to experience. And I often leave those nights just full to the brim, right? I mean, full belly, you know, full spirit, just thankful for this life and how God has put me ordained, sovereignly put me amongst people that I love. I mean, it's beautiful, right? And I hear other pastors talking about experiences like this, and I think, this is it, man. This is it. This is the business of following Jesus. It's unity, it's thankfulness, it's generosity, it's openness. And when I think of community that is distinctly Christian, I think this is a part of it. It is, right? Jesus was always eating with his disciples, right? I mean, what we experience on a Sunday morning, right, as communion, is a a pale styrofoam bad taste in your mouth compared to what they experienced as the Lord's Supper. And they did it often, right? The disciples would go on to eat and drink together, doing it in remembrance of him who called himself the bread of life. This kind of rejoicing together, feasting together, being thankful together is very much Christian, y'all. It really is. And I think it would be very, very, very easy for us to wrap that up, put a bow on it, and say, this is what it means to follow Jesus, as many have done and written books about and called people to. And this ideal that real Christian community is unified around a table, it is, it's good, right? Good food, good drink, good convo, having all things in common. Yes and amen, that's it. That's a part of it. It's a beautiful part of it, a lovely part of it. I'd say to be a part of a Christian community is to, from time to time, experience that kind of unity and gratitude and thankfulness, right? But that's not the whole. It's a part of it, a lovely part. It's not the whole. And I would argue that's not what makes your community distinctly Christian. Getting together with people you love and who love you, and sharing a meal does not indicate the love of God. It may only indicate the love of food, or the love of parties, or the love of drink, right? Remember, Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, which shows us that he did this often. But what was it about Jesus' parties that made it clear he wasn't just into to, uh, charcuterie boards and nice wine? right? Like, how convenient would it be if that's all we were called to as Christians, right? Don't you see how easy it would be in our culture to gravitate towards a version of Jesus who just wants to eat good food 
and drink good drink and have honest convo. I mean, I'm in. Who's not in? Everyone's in, right? <laughs> Eat good, I mean, tons of food, good drink, good convo. Who doesn't like that, right? It's super attractive, right? How much more American can you get, right, than eating more food than you need and drinking more drink than's good for you, right? I mean, we live in the land of bulk buying and walk-in pantries, right? I love me some Costco. I'm not knocking Costco. Sometimes I go to Costco just to walk around. I don't even have anything to buy. Don't tell my wife. Sometimes I do that, right? Just looking for good deals, right? But eating and drinking in abundance and unity and gratitude doesn't make you Christian, right? It makes you a recipient of common grace. Anyone can do that, right? It's totally possible to find non-Christians enjoying the same kind of unity around some cause or some deep, honest friendships around a good table full of food, right? Absent of Christ, of course, that's possible. You can do that. Go to any small town, bar, right? Any hobby club, any waffle house, any reunion meal with an open bar, right? You're going to find something of this sort where there's good food, enough to go around, and everyone's jolly, and there's plenty to be thankful for. So what was it? about Jesus' party that went further? What was it about his eating and drinking that pushed it to another deeper, deeper, more life-giving level? And therefore, what is the picture of community that God is calling me and you to? Well, he ate with his disciples. He did, of course. He ate with people who loved him. The thing about Jesus, his kind of community, his kind of love, is that he also ate routinely with people who hated him. Talk about the atmosphere in the room changing. It goes from jolly and lovely and thankful to someone's here to kill me. They literally were. And he routinely ate with his enemies, actively trying to trap the man, right? Actively seeking his ruin. He ate with his enemies, y'all, routinely. And like not, like not once and done thing. Like not like, oops, never do that again. Don't invite them. No, like over and over and over. Ate with either people who hated his guts and wanted him dead or people whom his culture had said they are worthless. Don't touch him with a 10-foot pole. We don't do that anymore in our culture. We're much more sophisticated. We don't dismiss any people group as worthless today. I'm never, I would never suggest that in a church, that you would ever dismiss any people group as worthless and not worth your time. I mean, pfft, we follow Jesus, don't we? Just let that settle for a second. He sat, he had dinner with people on both sides of the aisle, as it were. That's what I mean collectors in his day would have been considered enemies of the state, traitors. There were zealous people, zealous Jews in first century Judaism, right? In first century Israeli, whatever, Palestine, that violently sought to not, I mean, they killed tax collectors. Zealots were the, killed, killed them because the tax collector was a traitor, you are a Jew who is gathering money for the Romans and you're skimming some off the top. You're a traitor and a thief. And there were zealots who, with the, with the justification of their own conscience under God, sought these men out to kill them. Jesus ate with those guys. In fact, if you remember, he was also accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. You know who else he ate with? The dudes that hated them. Same table. In fact, this is so Fascinating. First of all, there, okay, there's a list in Luke 6 of the disciples. Did you know that three, there are three sets of disciples with the same name? 
Did you guys know this? I was reading it, and I was reading it slower and slower and slower. There are, what is it? I, I should have wrote this down. It's not my notes. There's like, there's two Judases, two Simonses, Simonses, and two someone. It's so confusing. One of the Simons is called a zealot, Simon the Zealot. And then you also know that Jesus called Matthew the tax collector. So here you have two men on the opposite sides of the political spectrum, as it were, following Jesus together, eating at the same table. The man, this Simon the Zealot, would have clearly been someone who had sought violent oppression of tax collectors. And here they had, they had seen something so beautiful in Jesus that they were willing to push that to the side. Who is this man? Who is this man that, that takes our deep inbred prejudice and crumbles them to powder? Man, this guy, right? He also ate with religious leaders. See, in the Gospels, with surprising frequency, Jesus is eating with Pharisees and religious. Many of the parables we have were Jesus giving them at a table shared with Pharisees. Now, who were Pharisees? They were the religious leaders of the day, the elite, the pastors, the guys that were running the show, kind of like really more like religious mafia in that day, right? They had political power, well, some sort of political power, but they were religious leaders, right? They were routinely the people throughout the New Testament who not only persecuted Jesus when he was alive, but after Jesus died and claimed that he rose again, uh, were persecuting his followers after him, right? So not only did he eat with these both groups of people, but he was continually pleading with them to enter into life. So this wasn't, as some of you might say, killing them with kindness, right? <laughs> oh, I'll eat with you, all right. Show you I'm better than you. No, it's not what we're talking about. He is engaging with these men, inviting them in. And you might say, well, wait a second, Chris. Wasn't Jesus routinely confronting Pharisees and religious arrogance and self. Well, absolutely he was, right. He, in fact, Jesus had his harshest words for the religious of his day. But he had harsh words for them to jar them into life, right? Not to dismiss them as worthless. He was exactly, he was doing with them exactly what he does with us, which is confront our sins so that you can be cured of it. So he longed for Pharisees to know life just like he longs for you to know life, right? How do I know that? Is anyone like, well, are you sure? No, I'm serious, right? How do I know that? Well, how do we know that Jesus really loved these Pharisees because he said some things to them, right? How do we know he loved them? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked because that's what's next. In Luke 13, when Jesus laments over Jerusalem, saying how he longs to gather them under his wings, he didn't say, except religious leaders, you guys can rot. No, them too. In fact, it was at the last day of the great feast when Jesus, which surely religious leaders were all around with an earshot, in which Jesus stood up and shouted, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, the scripture said, out of his heart will flow living water. And if you're like, well, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Can it, well, John 3.16, the most evangelistic scripture ever, right? Guess who Jesus was talking to when he said that? A religious leader. A Pharisee, in fact, the leader of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, right? It was to him to which he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes should not perish. But have. Now, this is my point. Why am I talking about that? This is my point. It is this, if anyone, whosoever, anyone at all, 
In other words, regardless of who you are or what you've done or haven't done, regardless of your self-worth or self-hatred, right? Regardless of your education or accolades or ignorance, anyone at all. It is this anyoneness that separates Jesus's feasting from ours. It is. These, all of these were not only welcome, but intentionally invited to the feast. It is, I would argue, the, the difference between when we feast and when we gather people around us and when Jesus, Jesus feasted and gathered people around him, the difference is his lavish and liberal approach to who gets God's love, right? That they struggled with then and that we struggle with now, right? Because it just makes sense that God loves who we love and hates who we hate, doesn't it? Doesn't it just make sense? It's this element of an utterly equal playing field when it comes to who can have and enjoy life in God that sets Jesus' eating and drinking apart. It's it's what distinguishes his love, and it should be what distinguishes yours if you call yourself a Christian. He didn't just eat with his friends, y'all. He ate with his enemies. In demonstration and proclamation, Jesus said over and over again, you are to be people who are so full of love that it spills out even on those who hate you and who you hate. That it spills out even on those who have generations and generations of spite between them, right? Should you eat with your friends and family? Yeah, yeah. Should you eat with the downtrodden and the lonely? Yeah, absolutely. But more, even more, eating with your enemies. Is anyone else challenged by this? Even those people who, in your natural state, you would hate and dismiss. All right, Jesus, sounds great. Thanks. Let's go home. No. Luke 14. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. See, we have an association with that list that's more like, oh, poor people. Their association with that list is you guys are sinners and you've deserved it. God has judged you for your sin, therefore you are blind. That That was their thinking. And he says, it's these people. Let me make it more clear for you. It's people whom in your Christian conscience, you have justified judgment and condemnation. People whom, in your Christian conscience, you have said they are worthless because of their ideals, because of what they're trying to do to this country, because of this, because of that. He says, invite them over for dinner. That makes your feasts Christian. Anything less is less than Christian. Then he said crazy stuff like this, if the room's not uncomfortable enough. Luke 6, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. And and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give 
to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And because this is as utterly bewildering bewildering and disorienting to them as it is to us, he says this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? You might say, well, I mean, it's the good that I did to them. It's the good right to me, right? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get the same amount. Three times he says the same thing, basically. But, 35, if you love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. So, everyone breathe, and let's chat. This is insane. This is insane. This is bonkers. Who's blessed? Who's, who's happy? Who's well off? What makes for a happy life? How do you secure a happy and good life for you and those who live around you, right? Well, we, we cluster to those like us. We, we do favors for people who are due, right? Have parties where we affirm our own all pre-existing thought patterns and ideas, right? Or do you secure life and happiness for you and others by inviting others in and overcoming cultural stigmas at the risk of your own reputation. Because you better believe, you show kindness to the opposition, you're gonna get some flack from your buddies. Amen. Huh? Why are you doing that? They don't deserve that. That's a big point, isn't it? They don't deserve your good graces. Isn't that how we justify it? Yeah. According to Jesus, It is exactly when you give your good graces to those who don't deserve it that your characteristic has become Christian. (laughs) Lending to those who lend back, that's not Christian. Loving those who love you, right? You start crossing that line, you've stepped over into something else. In fact, well, we might even sit here bewildered as we are contemplating this, you've stepped over into something completely other and supernatural. Because I ain't got that kind of love, bro. What are you talking about? How are you going to expect me to love people that doesn't make sense? This is the worst advice ever given. How are you going to build a business on that business plan? Not going to happen, right? going to lend to those not like, and Jesus is saying, when you sacrifice, when you give to people who you, ha- you think don't deserve it, now you're getting somewhere. Now you're getting into what he calls blessed, happy. That's the path, he says. And if you are not struck by this, you're not paying attention, right? It's when you give, when you serve, when there is no clear or immediate incentive or payback. He says, now you're getting there. He says, this will make you happy. This will make you happy. This will make you blessed. This is establishing true life for you here and a kind of life that will last into eternity. Jesus says, Jesus says, this is what marks my kind of love. And if you want to follow me, it's going to mark you too. That's what he says, y'all. This is absurd, right? 
Worst business plan in the universe. The question of our age, y'all, isn't the question of our age, where do I get maximum return? Isn't that the question? Therefore, this particular teaching, an example of Jesus, grates, grates like a cheese grater. Should I say it again? Grates against our modern consumeristic sensibilities, perhaps more so than anything else we see in the Gospels. And it's why we overlook and dismiss, intentionally or not, things like this over and over. So be friends with people who won't make me look cool on the gram, right? (laughs) Buy dinner for someone who will never buy me dinner back. What's the point? What are you talking about? That doesn't make you blessed, Jesus. It makes you stupid. I mean, are we chatting? Are we just going to pretend we all do this, right? This will go against, listen to me, this will go against almost all the advice you will be given. It will. People that love you will say, you're being an idiot. You're wasting your resources on someone who doesn't deserve it, right? How much, y'all, of our energies are geared at leveraging this job, leveraging this relationship, leveraging this moral deed for maximum return, maximum benefit, maximum pay. It is what all our efforts are aimed at, right? And so the advice we give is don't waste your good graces on those idiots. This guy has a lake house. Waste your good, I mean, spend your good graces on him, right? <laughs> Be kind to him, right? You don't schmooze with the janitor, you schmooze with the boss, right? And this is where human love breaks down every time. See, this is where God's love and human love violently separate and show themselves to be completely altogether different in essence. We cannot tolerate this kind of radical, lavish love. It is too brilliant for our souls, and we shield our eyes from it like we do the brightness of the sun. We barricade and insulate ourselves from such radical love because we are terrified if we give love like that, if we surrender our worldly benefits, if we give of our emotional resources, right, there won't be enough for me in the end. We are convinced, y'all, that the well is not deep enough for everyone to have some. Love is very much like a natural resource, isn't it? Compassion and forgiveness is just like lumber or iron ore. We think, well, we think that, that there's only so much of it to go around. Therefore, we clutch mercy and any kind of good feelings and any kind of love and affection we have to ourselves because of our neurotic insecurities. Instead of entertaining the idea that the love, that the well of God's love is deep enough for everyone. And because of the depth and the greatness of his acceptance and lavish love on us in the blood of Jesus, we no longer have to clutch those resources to our chest but can freely give it away. And let me tell you something, it's only when, the only person who can do this is the person who has grasped the gospel. It is not an option for you if you've not grasped the gospel because there's not enough to go around in that perspective. If you are earning 
your way up the moral mountain of ethical right doing, then how on earth are you gonna give away what you've earned? But if it has been freely bestowed on you, and if Jesus' words are true, that living water will flow like a spring from within you, then you need not clutch mercy and forgiveness and affection to yourself to gobble it all up. But you can open your hands of these things and extend it maybe to the person sitting next to you to start off with. Then maybe we can get to the cripple and the lame and our enemies, right? We often, y'all, clutch the perceived available resources to our chest, whether it is emotional, financial, or material. And if you are doing this, you will, in the end, implode under the weight of your own anxiety and scarcity mindset, right? How can Jesus expect us to do this? How can he expect us to practically, tangibly be people of this? Does anyone else struggle with this, right? The kind of expectation that we should not just love our friends, but our enemies. It's no wonder, guys, in Matthew 19, when Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle for the rich to enter the kingdom. Remember that one? It says that the disciples were bewildered. The word there is astonished. The word is struck off balance, panicked, like shell-shocked. Like, what? What are you talking about, right? Right? And of course, this teaching of Jesus to love those who hate you is equally disorienting. It's equally shocking. It is equally offensive, right? How can he expect us to do this? Doesn't he know how hard it is to love someone different than you? Doesn't he know how difficult it is to be kind to someone who has different priorities than you, that believes weird, crazy stuff, that has different ideologies and looks different and talks different, right? Have different priorities, different values that are just offensive, if we're honest. Doesn't he know how hard that is? Yeah, he does. Yeah, quite well, because he did. And he does. And he always will, because it's who he is. Jesus, look at me. Jesus doesn't say, here's this unbearable rule. Good luck following it. And if you don't, don't let the door hit you on the way out. There's plenty of room in hell for people like you. That's not what he says, right? No, he does the very thing that he calls you to. He shows us. He sacrifices. And not only does he show us in theory, y'all, and if you miss this, you miss the whole thing. It's not that he shows you some horrible person that you already think is hateful and, you know, you, he doesn't show you this horrible person and then he's like, oh, see? It's not hard. That's not how he shows you. It's not like that, right? He shows you by loving you. Doesn't just example it. He doesn't just say, this is how you should do it. He wants you to experience it, right? That's with all of your insane and backward ideas about life, with all of your short-sighted priorities, with all of the contrast between you and him, he loves you, right? Despite the fact that throughout the whole journey, you're demanding your own way, you're demanding your own wisdom, right? All of these things, scripture says, makes you out to be an enemy of God, under the wrath of God. And scripture says, when you were his enemy, he died for you. He doesn't just example it. He shows you. 
You experience being the enemy of someone who walks up to you instead of striking you down, affirms you, loves you, forgives you, takes the penalty that was due you. That's the gospel. And it's the only way we ever stand a chance at doing this. Like Pastor Chris just doesn't have a minute to, to love his enemies. Just can't do it. It's not going to happen, right? The only way we ever stand a chance at walking this path is what Jesus, he, he's, Jesus, he's the path. He's the path. Like he's the door. The only, the only way we stand a chance of doing this is him himself. If God loving the likes of you doesn't help you kind of get started doing this, right, right, then I would argue you may have an inflated view of yourself and maybe even deserve, maybe even imagine that you deserve his love. And the Bible's clear, y'all. We've all missed it. All have sinned, man. All of our heroic, righteous acts, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. And if we don't realize that we were his enemies and he loved us, then not only have we missed the gospel, but we will never, ever, ever be able to walk out what Jesus said. How do we know Jesus loved his enemies? Because he loved me. Because he loved you. And I am still often warring against his kingdom in my heart. And none of that mitigates his love for me. Nothing to do with me, right? Nothing to do with you. My rebel heart prone to wander, right? He bears the weight of my sin and puts himself where I should be. Jesus doesn't look at you and say, get yourself together and love your enemies. No, he looks at you and says, behold, see, open your eyes to my undying faithfulness to you, despite your hatred, despite your contempt for me. None of that, none of it has or ever will change the affections of the Father poured out on you in Jesus. That is the gospel. You can rail against him, you can raise your fist, still loves you, still accepts you, still calls you his child, culminating in his declaration from the place of his deepest agony, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You want to be the people of God? You want to do the Christian thing? You want to establish Christian community? Unless it finds its strength and motive in the cross, it is less than Christian. See, after Jesus' whole spiel in Luke 6 about love those who hate you, love you and do good, lend, expecting, you know why he says to do that? We didn't read the end. He says, for or therefore or because he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. My friends, this is what sets us apart as his children. Not that we love and invite our friends, although that can be hard enough. <laughs> right? It's that we love and desire good, not just for strangers, not just for aliens or the poor or the addicted, but even our enemies. That's distinct Christian community. That's what it means. Your enemies, people that hate you and would rejoice at your downfall. We're not just talking about like someone who snubbed you at work. We're talking about someone who is actively seeking your demise. We're talking about the group of people 
who you think are utter idiots and deserve the heavy hammer of justice. <laughs> We're talking about the person who rightly deserves judgment from you, right? How is the church, how are the people of God supposed to instigate change in the world? Think about it. What are to be the weapons of our warfare? How are we going to change the world? How are we going to bring about justice and equity? Through law? <laughs> Through politics? How about aggressive virtue signaling? <laughs> That's how we're going to change the world. How about domineering peer pressure? How about backhanded, contemptuous comments on social media? That's going to change the world. If that doesn't do it, what's going to do it, right? The only thing that ever could, ever will, ever can make any impact on the world, right? It's the unconditional, undying, never-ending, never-changing, self-sacrificing love of God in Christ. The weapons of our warfare are love. That is your weapon, church. Put away the other ones. Hmm? This is why only in Christ, because of Christ, can we ever hope to walk this path that he himself has walked. He himself is our righteousness. He himself is the love that we give. In Jesus, here it is. Our gratitude and unity isn't just, let's recognize and celebrate the physical blessings of common grace, good food, good drink, good conversation. What makes our fellowship distinctly Christian is our delighting in and rejoicing in the righteousness of God that is poured out on anyone that would have it. Anyone. For the Christian, listen to my words. For the Christian, no one is beyond the pale. No one. Not that political party, not that person, you, not even you, right? Perhaps more relevant in our day, not even those people you have unequivocally condemned. Listen, man, our society and our hearts right now are just ripe with self-righteous judgmentalism, right? I can't even get on social media without some normally self-professed Christian spewing out some self-righteous, self-justifying, contemptuous rant. The kind of people who are cheering at the downfall of another, we have ceased to think as Christians. So who is it? Who do you have your fists clenched towards right now, right? Who or what makes your blood boil when you think about it? That event, that relationship, that ideology, hmm? This is a terrifying thing in our society right now, but it is cool to be enraged, even to be violent almost, right? We have, in our society right now, if you're not enraged, you're an idiot, right? What people group have you demonized so as to justify your hatred and contempt? Perfect, start with them. Start praying for them. And you're like, oh, I'll pray for them. I'll pray for God's fire to fall down on them right now. Start praying for God's love to be known in their hearts. I dare you, I dare you to pray blessing physical blessing. Pray for good things to start happening for them. 
Pray for abundance. You better get rid of that hole. I don't pray for it. I'm going to kill him with kindness. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not what I'm talking about. Pray for God's heart to be known to them. Pray that they know and experience the unconditional grace of Jesus. Hmm? And if you're, if you're, <laughs> the tendency is, oh, I'll pray for him, you know. Jesus would rebuke you. He would look at you in the eyes and say, that is not my spirit. That's something else. I didn't come to destroy men. I came to save them, right? In fact, Jesus and the New Testament writers seem to put the responsibility of inviting those people in on you, the church. They seem to put the responsibility of not just believing they can be redeemed, but being an instrument of their redemption on you, Christian, on the church. He says, look, it's not just this ethereal exercise where we say, well, sure, they could be saved. Maybe, right, God's grace. Maybe it's big enough. I don't know. I mean, have you seen them, right? It's not just that. No. He says, you are called to be an instrument in the story of their redemption, That's the radical, scandalous love of the gospel. And that's what it does to people who understand and believe it, right? Not just believe they can be redeemed, but a willing instrument. What else can it mean that the people of God are called ambassadors of reconciliation, y'all? Right? Why? Because your moral high ground? No. Because his love broke through the darkness of your own hearts when you were his enemies. He loved, gave himself, even for those who hated him. And we are called to do the same in this life, right? And the Jesus' claim is that if we will begin to practice this in tangible ways, we will experience a kind of joy that transcends the natural world. Jesus, help us. Let's pray. Father, would you help us, Lord?